Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're going to go on Corinthians 7 today and we're going to talk about the topic of singleness. And I know that even as we kind of say that, as it was mentioned earlier, that singleness is the topic we're looking at today, there'll be different reactions across the room. Some of us who are single might think, finally, they're talking about us, they're talking about our life experience. Other of us who are single actually may think, oh no, singleness is painful for me. Maybe if you actually like, I don't want to think about the fact I'm single. Maybe you are single and you don't want to be. Or maybe you're single now through circumstances that have been very difficult for you. And actually it's a kind of a painful topic. And for those of us here who are married, some might be thinking, well, that's nice, isn't it? Every now and then we should let the singles kind of have their day. Let's talk about this today. Or you might be thinking, well, this obviously isn't going to be relevant for me. Do you think you'll notice if I kind of slip out now? So I want to start by pointing out this is a topic that is relevant to all of us. Even from our different um, life situations and different life experiences, this is relevant to all of us, important for all of us. One of the reasons for that is just singleness is a universal part of human life. Ever thought about that? We all live the first chunk of our lives single. Statistically speaking, a majority of us will also spend the last chunk of our lives single as well. This is relevant to all of us because it's a universal part of human experience. And also it's true that singleness is becoming more common in certainly modern Western society where we are right now. Fewer people are getting married, particularly people are getting married later in life, therefore living more of life uh, as a single person. And that isn't, I think, in the same way reflected in the church. The stats available are quite out of date now, they're like 10 years old, but I'm pretty certain it would still be true to say the kind of ratio of married to single people in culture isn't represented in the same way in churches in the UK, certainly. Far more married people than there are single people. Maybe that means we as Christians need to actually think about this topic. What does God say about singleness? And there's a simple fact that we are called to be family together. We're called to love and care for each other, to help each other faithfully follow Jesus. And that requires a bit of understanding of each other's life experience. So it's good to think about a topic like this. And I think if we're honest, when we as Christians think about the topic singleness, the kind of fundamental issue we come to and the underlying question we've really got to wrestle with is the question, is singleness good? Or is it possible to be a single person following Jesus and to really thrive? Because I think many of us assume that actually it's not. And even if we wouldn't kind of admit that and say that, we do struggle to believe singleness is good. And we kind of reveal it in little things we say. You hear things said like, oh, it's such a shame they're still single, or they're not yet married, kind of the implication of marriage is the goal we're heading for. The one that really bugs me is when someone gets married, and like one of the parents goes, well, they're sorted, just one left. And I want to say, am I not sorted as a single person? We say these things that reveal we're not really sure singleness is good. And we probably do think marriage is success and the goal and what we're going for. We often instinctively feel that way, and yet the Bible takes a very different view. The Bible takes a very positive view of singleness. Both Paul the Apostles, we're going to see, and Jesus as well in Matthew 19, speak very positively about singleness as a good thing, a good blessing, even actually, as we're going to see, a preferable blessing. And so today what I want to help us to do is to kind of explore the Bible's vision for singles who truly thrive and how all of us, whether married or single, young or old, have a part to play in making that a reality. And just to give you a bit more context of me, my story, why I care about this topic, why I have the privilege of travelling around a bit and teaching about this, 
I'm a guy who's single and who expects to live my life as a single celebrate guy. So I grew up in a church context, was very blessed to know and love Jesus from a young age. And I assumed that obviously I would get married in my early 20s, I'd get a decent job, settle down, have a few kids. That just seemed to be very clearly the good Christian thing to do I saw happening around me and seemed to be kind of implied from the pulpit in my church. And then I got to my early teen years and I realised that I was attracted to other guys, that I'm gay or same-sex attracted or whatever language we want to use for that. And so I've had to wrestle with, okay, what does that mean for me wanting to faithfully follow Jesus? And as I'll talk more about later, I've come to the conclusion that what I'd been taught and what Christians have believed for 2,000 years is what the Bible says, which is that sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong unions of one man and one woman. And since that doesn't particularly interest me, I'm choosing to be single and celibate out of faithfulness to Jesus. So I've had to wrestle with, is singleness good? I'm likely to live my whole life as a single guy. Is singleness good? And how do I thrive as a single person? And so I'm not saying I've got all the wisdom. There'll be people in the room who have faithfully followed Jesus and lived life as single people much longer than I. But I hope that as we open up God's word together, we're all going to be encouraged. We're going to be challenged when we need to be and helped in thinking about this. And the place we're going to open up is 1 Corinthians 7. I think you've kind of been in this letter for a while, so you know a bit about it. Paul the Apostle, an early church leader, writing to a church in Corinth. A church which you might have spotted, if you've been here for a while, is in something of a mess. And Paul has heard kind of various reports about stuff that's going on and is seeking to bring gospel truth, Jesus' truth, into that. And in chapter 7, he actually turns to address some things he's heard about in a letter from the church, all around the topics of kind of marriage and divorce and singleness. And what I'm going to seek to do is to draw out what Paul says about singleness. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's quite long and we're not going to have the time to kind of look at every bit in detail. So it's quite complex. But my encouragement to you is after this morning, go away, read the chapter, check that what I've told you is actually what Paul says. That's important to do from preachers and kind of see how it all fits together. But what I'm going to seek to do is to draw out what is Paul saying about singleness. And it seems that this letter to Paul from the Corinthians has said kind of something around, made some statement about whether or not it's good to be married. And Paul's answer is really clear in the overall chapter. He says, yes, it's good to be married. And yes, it's good, maybe even better to be single. There's a really clear preference that Paul expresses in this chapter for singleness. He says in verse 7, I wish that I, so I wish that all, were as I myself am. He's speaking as a single guy, talking about singleness and marriage. He says, actually, I wish everyone was in my situation. In verse 8, he says to the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. In verse 38, he who marries his betrothed, the one he's engaged to, does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He thinks singleness is good. Actually, singleness is even better. And right at the very end of the chapter, he's talking to widows, people whose spouse has died. And he says they're totally free to marry again. And yet he says, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Paul clearly thinks that singleness is good. He actually seems to say singleness is better. I was telling Daniel earlier, I wrote an essay on 1 Corinthians 7 at uni and one of my professors, happens to be Daniel's godfather, had a little note at the end and I was too sheepish to actually admit Paul says singleness is better and he basically just said, but he does, doesn't he? And the reality is, you read the chapter, Paul does think singleness is better. He must think it's a good thing. He must think it's a context in which we can thrive. I'm going to explore in just a moment why that is. But one thing Paul does in this chapter is he says singleness is good, singleness may be even better than marriage, but he knows that as he says that, there are several misunderstandings that people might assume from what he says. And 
he wants to clear some things up before he actually gets to telling us why singleness is so good. So three misunderstandings we might think when we hear singleness is good and even is better. The first one is just a simple thing. We might wrongly think that marriage is bad because singleness is better. And that is not what Paul is saying. And he's clear in this letter, in this chapter, elsewhere in his writings, marriage is a wonderful, good gift from God. And we can get that. You might think, I don't know, one supermarket is better than another. You may have reasons why you think that. That doesn't mean you think every other supermarket is bad. Or you may think that one area or one borough of London is better than another. You may have reasons why you think that. Doesn't mean you think the rest of London is rubbish. When Paul says singleness is good, even better, he's not saying marriage is bad. And it's very clear that he thinks marriages that exist should continue. And actually that it's fine to get married. You would have noticed that in those verses we've already looked at. The opening few verses of this chapter are talking to married people and telling them actually the importance of keeping having sex in their marriage and for their marriage to continue. He talks in verses 12 to 16 about a Christian who's married to someone who isn't a Christian. And he says, as far as it's within your kind of control, continue in that marriage. Marriage is a good thing. He's not saying marriage is bad just because singleness is good. And actually, he tells us that both these things, both marriage and singleness, both of them are gifts. Verse 7 again. I wish that all as I were, as I myself am, single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Both marriage and singleness, they're both gifts, both good things that God gives us, but they're different. And God gives different gifts to different people. And notice just while we're talking about singleness as a gift, there's no hint here that for singleness to be a gift means it's this kind of superpower to endure what other, people's, other people can't. Often as Christians, that's what we think the gift of singleness is. Some people have this amazing superpower to endure this otherwise awful situation of singleness. And they never get lonely. They never experience sexual temptation. They have the gift of singleness. That is not what Paul is talking about. The gift of singleness isn't a superpower to endure this otherwise awful thing. The gift of singleness is the state of being single. And the gift of marriage is the state of being married. If you're single right now, you've received the gift of singleness. You're experiencing that gift. If you're married right now, you've received and experiencing the gift of marriage. It's the state of these things which is the gift. That's how we can say both of them are gifts. Otherwise, you get this weird thing of married people with a gift, single with a gift, and then people in the middle who are single without the gift. But no, no, Paul says we've each got one of these gifts. And so Paul says that singleness is good, even better, but marriage is good too. They're both good gifts. That's one misunderstanding he wants to clarify for us. And then there's a couple more misunderstandings he wants to look out for. He knows that some people might hear this and think, oh yeah, this is okay, because you can be single but still be having sex. And actually in the context he was in, in ancient Corinth, that would have been a view that would have made sense to people. If you were a high-status Roman male particularly, you would marry a wife to get a legitimate heir to carry on your name and inherit your stuff. And then you were basically free to have sex with any person you wanted, male or female, so long as they weren't someone else's wife and they weren't a freeborn Roman. They could easily have thought, oh yeah, singleness is fine, and singleness means you can still be sleeping around and hooking up, basically. And that'd be very similar to our culture, wouldn't it? In our culture, singleness doesn't make people immediately think of not having sex, think of celibacy. But Paul knows that Christian singleness is always also a call to celibacy, a call to not engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, because he knows God's plan, what we'll talk about again this afternoon. God's good plan, God's good design for sex is that it's this deep, unitive action in the context of a committed covenant relationship between a man and a woman. 
And as we'll see this afternoon, that's actually it's meant to tell us a story about Jesus, but you've got to come later to hear that story. Paul knows that knows God has, for good reason, reserved sex for marriage unions of one man, one woman. Therefore, to be single means to be called by God to celibacy, to not having sex. And he wants to bring that clarification. That's why you get some of these, what we often find the most confusing verses in this chapter. He encourages, in verse 36 the years, he encourages those who, people who are engaged basically to get on and get married. He says if, if, if they're not, uh, sorry, if they're struggling to live celibately. He says, verse 36, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It's no sin. Paul knows that actually, you no, know, God's called us to not engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. So he basically says, if you're engaged and you're struggling not to have sex, if all other things mean it's a good reason to get married, then get on and get married. Same thing he says in uh, verse 9 to the unmarried and widows. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And often we misread this verse and we think, oh yes, that's because most people don't have the superpower of singleness and they're going to burn with passion if they're not married. That's not what he's saying. He actually puts this in the present tense. He says if they're not exercising self-control, i.e. if they're sleeping together, actually they should get on and either break that up or just get on and get married. His assumption is these are people who are betrothed or engaged, they're struggling to control themselves. If all else is kind of, um, you know, there aren't other, other reasons why they definitely shouldn't get married, he said actually the wise thing to do is to get on and get married. He's speaking here into a very specific situation. He's not saying that just because we experience sexual temptation means we're definitely not called to singleness and we need to get married. But he's saying in these specific circumstances, it's a reason to consider should we get on and get married? But for our purposes, what we need to get is, Paul is saying, no, sex is reserved for marriage. To be single also means to be celibate. He wants to clear up the misunderstanding that people think, yeah, it's fine, I can be single, but I can still be hooking up all over the place. Christian singleness means celibacy. And the third misunderstanding he knows the readers, and we might think when we read about the goodness of singleness, is that we might assume that singleness is kind of spiritually superior. Singleness actually puts you closer to God. It makes you a better Christian. It puts you in a certain holy state so you can really be in wonderful relationship with Jesus. It seems the guys he's writing to may have thought that, may have assumed that. There are indications in the chapter that some people were thinking, oh, I need to end my marriage so I can be single, perhaps because they thought that would get them closer to God. Well, the reason he tells married couples in the first few verses, no, keep having sex in your marriage, maybe because some of them thought, oh, we should stop having sex because that gets us closer to God. And Paul wants to show, no, no, singleness isn't better because it makes you spiritually superior, but actually it's got some really important practical benefits that he'll come on to. He wants us to see that actually we can stay in the state in which we came to Christ as a kind of a declaration that it's not these things like marriage or singleness that get us close to God, it's all based on what Jesus has done. And that's why if you do go away and read 1 Corinthians 7 later, you'll read about marriage and divorce and singleness, and then suddenly you get to this paragraph from verse 17 where Paul goes off and starts talking about slavery and circumcision. And you're reading, you think, Paul, what are you doing? Keep your mind on the task. We're talking about marriage and divorce and singleness. There's a really good reason why he starts talking about those topics. He's talking about the fact that it's actually good for us to stay in the state and situation in which we were when we came to faith, if it's not an area of sin, because actually it's a way of kind of showing, actually my status before God isn't based on anything other than what Jesus has done. 
If I'm a slave, I don't need to get my freedom, although Paul says you're free to do so if you can, because actually it's not my status as a slave or a free person in the ancient world which commends me to God. If I'm uncircumcised, I don't need to get circumcised. That's not the thing that commends me to God. Jesus is the one that makes me acceptable to God. He says it's good to stay in the status in which you are. And the reason he has that there is that kind of slightly peculiar, surprising uh, paragraph in the middle of this chapter on different topics is he's trying to get us to realise that it's not that singleness puts you in a superior spiritual state. That's not actually what it is about. He wants to clear up that misunderstanding so that he can now take us in the last third of the chapter to, well then why is singleness so good? Why is it such a good gift from God? And there are three reasons he gives us. He talks in verses 26 to 27 about some present distress. In view of the present distress, he said actually singleness is a pretty good thing. This probably was literally something happening in the city of Corinth at the time. Some scholars think there was a famine going on. It just was not a practical time to be thinking about getting married and potentially having kids and kind of having dependents. He's saying sometimes there are really kind of just simple practical reasons why marriage is potentially unwise. And I think that's interesting for us to consider. Would we very often let some practical considerations trump actually someone's uh, desire to get married? And Paul's saying, you know, there's some real practical wisdom to be applied here. And I wonder if our sometimes over-idolisation of marriage would make us miss that point or be at risk of doing so. The second reason he says singleness is so good uh, is in verse 28 to 31. He says, time is growing short. Verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. And this isn't so much kind of like Jesus is coming tomorrow, so kind of look busy and don't think about the future. It's more time is at a premium. We live between the return of Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father and then his return to earth to bring to consummation all his work. We live between the first and second coming of Jesus. And this time is of a different type, Paul is saying. This time is special, it's different. And the fact that we're living between the ages should shape everything we do shape all of our choices, shape all of our thinking, shape all of our priorities, including how we choose to live and use the very limited time we have in this age and on this earth. He's saying this time is special times at a premium. Therefore, seriously consider whether a better use of this special time or a better way of living in this special time would to be single if you aren't already married. And then finally, the one we find easiest to understand, which I think Paul has been working up to is his kind of pinnacle, in verses 32 to 35, he says, singleness is so good because it gives us freedom from anxiety. He says, married people are rightly anxious about worldly things. They've got responsibilities towards their spouse and any children they may have in the context of that marriage. He says, actually, single people have this freedom to be anxious about the things of the Lord. He uses this beautiful phrase that actually singleness allows us to have undivided devotion to the Lord. Isn't that an exciting concept? Undivided uh, devotion. By the invitation we were hearing prophetically earlier, we as singles have a particularly unique opportunity for undivided devotion to seek him and seek deep intimacy with him. Adventures as we're hearing earlier with him. Paul's saying there's a good reason here to consider whether if you're not married, singleness could be a good thing for you. And that last one's so interesting, I think, because it's striking, and Sam Walbury, his great book on singleness, points this out. We tend to think of singleness as being about absence. Singleness is the absence of a partner, the absence of a spouse. 
Paul's talking about singleness as the presence of something, the presence of opportunity. Singleness doesn't leave you without stuff. It gives you something, this opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul thinks singleness is good. He thinks it's a context in which we can truly, truly thrive. And he's got some, I think, pretty good pragmatic reasons for why that is. And I think he is indicating that actually if we're not married, we should think about actually is singleness a good thing, a good way for us to live our lives? And either way, if we are single now or at some point in our lives, how do we best take hold of the opportunities it offers to us? And so if our big question is, is singleness good? I think we give quite a clear answer that Paul here and Jesus elsewhere, the New Testament as a whole, is very positive about singleness. It's good. It's a gift. It's a context in which we can thrive and we can flourish as followers of Jesus. And yet, let's be honest, we also know we struggle to believe that, don't we? We don't instinctively feel that to be true. Maybe actually we're a single person and we feel we struggle to experience that. It's great to hear the theory, but the reality feels so different. Maybe we're married, but we know single people for whom this isn't so much a a reality and this might be a difficult thing to think about. For many singles, it can feel more like trying to survive rather than actually seeking to live and to thrive. What's going on? Well, I don't think the problem is with the gift. My hunch is that God's good gift probably is good and he's probably not made a mistake there. So we've got to ask, well, what else actually might be going on? And I think what has happened is we've built understandings of church and of of Christian life where singleness just doesn't quite really fit. And there's other stuff God says in his word, other things he's called us to as his people, which if we don't get it right and put it into practice, singleness doesn't work. It's a bit like, imagine I give to a child um, a Brio level crossing. Brio is this beautiful wooden uh, train set. And I give this child this Brio level crossing as a gift. And it's a, a lovely gift, it's a good gift in and of itself. But if that kid has no trains and no other track and no other Brio stuff, as good as the gift is, he's not going to experience all of the goodness of that gift because it needs other things around it. I think God's given this good gift of singleness to many of his people, and yet we haven't put some of the other stuff around it we need in place. And so we don't experience the goodness, even though it is good. So that means what do we need to do? We need to think, well, what goes around this to make it work, make it make sense? And what role do we have as a church community and each of us as individuals in making that a reality? So I think there are some things we need to rethink about how we approach church and Christian life and just how we think about life to help single people experience the goodness of this gift. Let me quickly run you through three things I think it's helpful for us to rethink. The first one is to rethink the gift of sex. We often have wrong understandings of sex. We think about sex more like the world around us does than actually the word of God tells us to. And that can make singleness seem impossible. And in particular, there are two lies we often believe about sex that make singleness feel impossible. One lie, very common in the world around us, is a simple lie that sex is a need. We either think it's a biological need to kind of be healthy or to survive, or we think it's like an adulthood need, you need to be having sex to be an adult. That's why in popular culture, adult virgins are seen as these weird, infantile, kind of comedic figures who we think that you need to be having sex to actually be an adult. It's a really common belief in the world around us, and many of us as Christians have absorbed that sense that, yeah, in some ways, sex is a need. The problem with that, however, is it's just patently not true. You don't die if you don't have sex. There are no serious health problems that occur from not having sex. It's not like not having oxygen or water or the other things we need. And on the whole kind of adulthood thing, I just want to say, well, who says so? What magically happens to you when you have sex that now you are an adult? 
We all recognise when we stop and think about it, it's an absurd idea. Sex isn't actually a need. And yet many of us believe it, and so we think this idea of celibate singleness is crazy and impossible and can't be good. The truth is that sex isn't a need. It's not necessary for our physical or mental and emotional health. And actually, for us as Christians, Jesus is the supreme proof of that. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to live a human life under God to its fullness. A single guy, never gets married, never has sex. As we go on to see in a moment, love is necessary. That's important to say. We don't need to have sex to experience love. Sex isn't a need. Another lie in our culture that links into this about sex is we're told by our culture that our sexual desires are our identity. To find the real you, you've got to look inside yourself, actually. Who are you attracted to? What desires do you experience? That's the real you. And you need to be true to yourself. Embrace those, express those, put those into action in order to find your best life. And so we're told we need to know if we're straight or gay or bisexual or pansexual or asexual. Find out who you are and live out your truth about who you are to find your best life. And that's a narrative you literally see in TV series and films. The kind of theme of identity is very often prominent in celebrity coming out stories. It's very much in the waters we're swimming in. The problem with this one is, this is a terrible way of making identity. Building your sense of self and what you feel inside is a, a terrible way of doing things. Our desires are unstable. They're not a solid basis for our identity. They can conflict. What if I really want this and I really want that, but they can't both go together? Which one is the real me? Which one do I embrace to be true to myself? Often we look inside ourselves and just think, frankly, there's a whole mess of stuff there. How do I know who I am if that is how I'm meant to find myself? And the real clincher here, I think, is the fact we can all think of desires, even sexual desires, that none of us are going to go, yes, that's who you are. Yes, you do you, you be true to yourself. No one really believes this as prominent as it is in our culture. So actually, we're just picking and choosing. It's a very peculiar way of making identity. The wonderful truth we have and we get to share with the world as Christians is that actually our true identity, identity that works, comes from God. We receive identity from God. Not looking within, but receiving from God. And that the epitome of identity is Christian identity. Where we, through trusting in Christ, become adopted as God's children, accepted and loved and delighted over. And then we find our best life by living out that identity, living by God's ways. And so it's not true that sex, our sexual desires, are our identity, and therefore we need to be able to express those and have sex to find ourselves and find our best life. We begin to realise actually celibacy isn't so crazy, isn't so terrible, isn't so impossible. We realise sex isn't a need and it isn't our identity. So we need to rethink sex as a starting point if we're going to help people experience the goodness of singleness. And we need to rethink love. This actually links, as I've already intimated, to the misunderstandings about sex. One of the reasons we think we need sex is because we recognise we need love, and in our culture we think sex is one of the only ways really you can experience love, or at least sex and romance are. And there's a misunderstanding there, but there's a half-truth. The truth is that we do need love. You and I are created by God with a God-given need for human love. Human community is so important to us. But it's not the case that we need to be in a sexual romantic relationship in order to experience that love. That's often believed in our culture. That's why this is just this quest in our culture to find the one. That's why there seems to be a nether-ending proliferation of dating shows on our TVs because life's about finding the one and that's what's going to satisfy you. And the narratives of most TV and films ultimately, or at least have as part of the narrative, are finding the one kind of thing. 
We need to recognise that sex is a way in which we experience loving intimacy in that context of a one man, one woman, a marriage, but actually isn't the only form of intimacy, isn't the only way you can feel loved. You don't have to look far to realise this. We look at different cultures around the world and realise actually there's real expressions of intimacy, even in physical ways, that are not sexual. You look through history and you see the same. And actually the real clincher here is family. We all recognise that there is, uh, you can truly have an expressing experience love without there being a sexual element involved. We recognise that's how family is meant to be when it's rightly working. It's just not true. We need sex and romance to feel loved. The truth is that God has given us multiple ways in which we can experience the love we created to need. One of those is friendship. We need to raise our understanding of what friendship should be because Jesus says friendship is where you really see love. You'll notice in John 15, Jesus wants to define the greatest love to us, explain to us the greatest love. And he thinks, oh, is it marriage? No, is it sex? No, he thinks, ah, oh, friendship. That's where it's at. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus defines friendship, daring in that passage in John 15, as a relationship of radical, self-sacrificial love. And then we as church communities are meant to be communities of radical love. In that same passage in a few chapters earlier in John 13, he gives that command, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. He's saying this having just washed the disciples' feet, the actions of a slave in the ancient world. He's saying it knowing that the next day he will hang on a Roman cross, receiving all the wrath of God for their sins upon himself. He says, now you're to love one another as I have loved you. Radical love, no sex, no romance, love in the context of church community and friendship. It's not true that a life of singleness and celibacy means not being loved. Certainly not my experience. My own experience has been both that others deliberately love me with me, being the thing that's most helped me to thrive as a single person. And actually I look at my life now and it is in many ways more relationally rich than many actually of my married friends with kids who have a load of practical obligations through that. I get to be involved in and be a part of multiple families and have multiple deep loving friendships. My life is not a life of loneliness and isolation, as people so often assume. It is a life of rich, relational connection and deep love. So the practical question for all of us becomes, well, how do I seek to best love other people and to really express that and help people to experience love? How do I deepen the love of my friendships? How do I help people in my church community to feel that they are deeply loved and to experience that so that we've all got a role to play in? We want to rethink love. And closely linked, and I've almost mentioned it there, my example, you need to rethink family. One of the reasons we tend to think singles can't thrive is we think actually singleness means you are denied the chance for family and therefore you are isolated, therefore you are lonely. I think that's because we, both our culture and in church culture often in this nation, have a very narrow view of family. Family is kind of a couple of parents, maybe, and some children. It's this closed-off unit and the, the goal is to have that and put up the drawbridge as it were and that's your family, you're sorted. But actually in the biblical vision, we're meant to have families, but they're open for others to join in. Because the biblical vision actually is that we as church, we are family. It's identity, it's not we're like family, it's who we actually are. We're children of God, that means we're siblings together, but we need to make sure we live as family, not just be family. By the way things work, everyone has biological family. Sadly, not everyone gets to live and experience family life with their biological family. It's a different thing to live as family is to be family. We are family because called to us is to live as family. So everyone who wants to be, who's part of church community, gets to experience family. So no person who doesn't want to be is left without an experience of family. 
because we are family together. And often what that means actually is doing the quite normal things we do in daily life, but doing it alongside others, opening our lives for others to be involved. That's what most of family life is, isn't it? Most of family life isn't the big special occasions and polishing the family silver and getting out the candelabra and laying on a seven-course meal. It's just doing the really normal mundane stuff, but doing it together. It means if you're going to Ikea, invite people to join you. If you're having pizza and watching Britain's Got Talent or X Factor or Strictly or whatever is your Saturday night TV of choice, just invite others to come with you. If you're decorating a room or walking a dog or just not doing much, invite others to come and join you in that. It means that single people get to experience family. It means that married people get friends, which is really important and we sometimes forget that. It means that children get the input and love of multiple different adults in their lives. As I say, my experience is that my experience of family is richer and broader than many of my married friends. Being single doesn't mean I don't have family. It actually means I'm part of so many families and have such a wonderful experience of family. It allows me to thrive. It's something we need to rethink and put into practice and play our part in to help singles to thrive. So is singleness good? Can singles thrive? Scripturally, we have to say, yes, it's good. And yes, it must be a context in which we can thrive a good gift from God. It's true that we're all built for relationship and singleness doesn't mean we don't get what we need, but we've got to put these other things in place around it. And that's not just something for singles to think about, not just something for church leaders to think about, it's something for all of us to think about. All of us have a part to play. And actually the way for a church to become a place where singles can thrive is for every individual to think, how am I going to play my part? Because if we all suddenly did that, we'd be straight there, straight away. And so I just want to kind of leave you with that challenge, that encouragement. What do you need to do? What does it look like for you to put this into practice? As a single person or a married person, we singles are not excluded. It's easy as a single person to sit around and think, when are the married people and the families going to look after us? Friends, we're called just as much to be family for other people as they are for us. What's this look like for you?